if you're a law enforcement officer, you know firsthand that policing is changing. If you're a citizen, you probably are only aware of policy changes regarding the use of force. If television news gives it 30 to 45 seconds of airtime, or you read a few paragraphs in print. Well, particular attention has been given to how individuals who resist arrest can be subdued without serious injury. Certainly, the death of George Floyd in the custody of the Minneapolis Police Department put a spotlight on arrest techniques throughout our country. Um, turn around, I was driving down Quinn, I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Columbus, subject to 1074, electronic identity aware. NCJA 1014. In North Carolina, as it usually does, the Justice Academy has developed new training in subject control. One of the individuals who played a vital role in the development of these new techniques is my guest for this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett, and my guest is Aaron Stevens, who is an instructor course developer based on the East Campus in beautiful downtown Salemburg, where among his specialties are courses on subject control, of which he is also the school director. Aaron, your debut on our podcast. Welcome. Very, very glad to have you. Hey, thank you, Kerry. Good morning. And uh, I've been looking forward to uh, getting on here and, and uh, speaking with you. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And you've got some great information to share, too, because, as I said just a few moments ago, policing then is not policing now. And certainly in the area of subject control, that has changed and has needed change radically for quite some time. So I'm just going to go ahead and date myself and say, you know, when I entered police work, subject control was more hands-on. And I mean, literally hands-on. We did have tools. The baton, or it was more commonly called nightstick, was one of the tools on our belt. Later came the flashlight, the famous 3D cell kale light that I'm sure some of the older guys will remember was a preferred choice. And we were actually trained on how to use that flashlight as an offensive weapon. And then we involved into more of the, what I call compliance tactics with subject control and arrest techniques, more commonly known as SCAT, which was, in my opinion, as an older guy, was more like hand-to-hand combat. So Aaron, let's open our discussion talking about some of these more ancient subject control tactics And then bring us into today's practices. So I guess what I'm looking for is that out of these, talk about the issues that they created for officers currently on the street. So in police work, no matter what we do, of course, we are constantly evolving and adapting with uh, new laws that get passed down, case laws that decisions come down, policy procedures. We're constantly adapting. And of course, Over the last several years, a big push has been on the way that we use force, our subject control tactics, our techniques, just uh, our ability to use force and decision making and and the way that we employ those tactics. Of course, that has changed a lot. Our expectations, what we need to be doing is is, uh, changed with the recent events that's happened over the last couple of years. We haven't had a big major revision to our use of force in, in about over 20 years. There's been some minor revisions and changes and updates, but our actual techniques that the officers are taught at the basic level and their in-service defensive tactics hasn't changed in over 20 years. That's been a, a big push, of course, and that's where I had to step in and do the research, development, test it, train in these new tactics to get us 
on the right track to the future of the way that we use our, our force and the way that our officers are trained and what they're trained in. Everyone that I've spoken to gave demonstrations, presentations, uh, kind of give them a breakdown of what we're doing. They have 100% been on board with uh, where we're going. And a lot of times I get, well, this has been much needed. This is uh, something that I wish we would have had years ago. And uh, I'm really happy to see where we're going with all this. And every now and again, I'll run across, you know, the uh, the older veterans who uh, sometimes, even though our job requires to be so adaptable, we are some of the worst ones to want change. As soon as something new comes up, uh, it's just, uh, it's been working for me all these years. I don't want to change kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the world is just falling apart because we're going to have to adapt and do something new. I usually explain to them that uh, before the big cases that really control our use of force and, and shape how we make those decisions and the tactics that we employ, Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor, those two big ones that we rely on. Going back to the archives before those cases, I found a, a lesson plan uh, that was written up for defensive tactics that dated back to 1977. Looking at the uh, the standard and the guidelines of using force then, uh, a lot of it, like you said, it, it employed either a flashlight or the nightstick, the PR-24, the nightstick. Almost all the tactics, it was eight-hour training, and almost all of them were geared around using that old-school nightstick. And it talked about in there, if you are one-on-one with a heavily intoxicated person or a mental ill person, they don't feel pain, they don't have good decision-making and judgment, and they're very irrational and unpredictable. So if you need to, you can strike them in the head, causing serious injury and or death. Then it went on to state that if it's two officers on one, they still may be unpredictable and overpower the officers. So both of them can strike them in the head or spine, groin, wherever they need to. But then when you get to three officers on one, you need to be careful because this is a gray area. So from that, the way that they did policing 40 years ago, uh, 40 plus years ago, I'm sure when Tennessee versus Garner, Graham v. Connor, all these cases came out, a lot of the veterans uh, and olders who were set in their ways were just like, they're wanting us to get softer. They're wanting us to do these new training and use hands-on instead of using a nightstick. And, uh, you know, they may be some somewhat stuck in the mud of not wanting to change. But of course, us looking back at those tactics is like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. How could that ever have been acceptable? I think now 20, 30 years in the future, the way that we are constantly adapting and evolving, folks will probably look back on the times that we're in now as we're changing and think, we've got so many more tools and technologies caught up and there's different ways of doing things and public perception has changed. And we will probably look to the future people just like we do the ones in the past. With the way that we have trained the last 20 years, and uh, I'll kind of talk about this a little more in depth as we kind of branch off here, we have a few issues that we kind of identified with the way that the officers employ these tactics. One, they don't, other than their 40 hours that they train in basic law enforcement, a lot of times they don't get any additional training once they get out of BLIT. Once they graduate basic law enforcement training, they don't receive any further training. So their confidence in their skills and their abilities and their knowledge to use those tactics begins to wane off. And they don't get a refresher in your retraining. And they may go months, years without actually having to use force and, and run across somebody who's resistive or combative. 
and uh, they lack the confidence in themselves and in their abilities. This also leads to their insufficient ability to take a decisive action when it's needed. And then some of them, they may run across this gray area where the person's not fully combative, where they're not trying to assault the officer. They're just resistant of they don't want to go into handcuffs. They're pulling away. They're not listening to the commands. And they don't want to employ some of the more um, defensive or perceived as violent tactics, such as hard hand strikes with uh, the fist or knees and kicks. They don't want to go to a baton or OC. They feel like they haven't hit that green light in their head of being able to use that. And that leads to that inability to make a decisive action. Well, you talked about the problems and you said three letters or four letters that I think are pretty important in this discussion, and that's BLET or basic law enforcement training. So you identified some problems for officers already on the street, especially old goats like me. But what about training our current tactics? What are we doing in BLET or what changes are we making for those guys who are going through the academy who will eventually come out onto the street? As you probably already know, with our basic law enforcement training in the, over the past two years, experts and, and uh, subject matter experts and teams have been working, researching, developing and testing new material for a new basic law enforcement training. That'll be uh, we'll be piloting that in next year, 2023, and then I'll have a full rollout to the entire state uh, following that. Right now, currently with the tactics we've been doing for the last 20 years is uh, we have very little soft hand techniques. So we'll have a quick take, like a joint lock, bent wrist, uh, armbar takedown, and, and pressure point application. From then, they basically will go into like their hard hand strikes of punches, kicks, knee strikes. They're more, they're stunning and distraction techniques that they'll, they'll use. And then they'll cover weapon retention and, and uh, baton, all the relatable tactics with that. With the new stuff that we are pushing out, it's going to give them more soft hands approach where they have um, a better chance to grab a hold of the person. Really, what we have pushed for the last uh, 20 years is make space, get back away from the person and go to something else or try to buy yourself a little more time to figure out what just happened and make a decision. And usually they'll go to a defensive tactic to make space and go to something on their belt, whether that's a baton or OC or, or taser, try to keep the person back. We're still going to employ that, but we're kind of going to use a, a, a more of a decision making of all in, all out. The officer will make a decision is whether they need to go all out, as in they need to back up and make space. Or if the person's just too close and they'll make an all in decision where they will actually enclose the distance with the person and, uh, and wrap them up almost kind of like a kind of looks like a bear hug a little bit. So that way the person uh, limits their ability to hurt the officer as well as escape. And then the officer can take the person down from that position and kind of hold them. And that's where we kind of get into the introduction of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as we're trying to bring that into uh, the new tactics that we're going to be employing uh, in basic law enforcement training. Well, Aaron, you mentioned the word decision at least two or three times. And I think that is just a critical point in a lot of things that law enforcement does. So I'm going to go all the way back to probably the earliest days of law enforcement. I'm sure there were issues that existed with decision-making abilities, especially when it comes to the use of force. And of course, as we all watched the video of the arrest of George Floyd in Minneapolis, a lot of questions arose out of what became a fatal and very unfortunate incident. So talk to us a little bit about how we're addressing 
not only the use of force, but the decision-making process when it comes to using force. The way that we train our basic law enforcement officers and our in-service is uh, if we use a scenario which causes them to use decision-making, it's usually one of two on the far spectrum. It's usually somebody who can, they can gain voluntary compliance by simply having command presence, using their voice, attempting to verbally de-escalate the person, and then they'll turn around, submit to the authority, and they'll, they'll effect the arrest. Or it's on the far spectrum where the person is full-on combative and coming at them and, and fighting the officer, and the officer will defend themselves, control the person, and then effect the arrest. That's, it's good training, but the problem is, is officers, they show up looking for one of those two answers to the scenario in real life. One, they're looking, let me see if I can just talk the person down and get them under control and get that voluntary compliance. Or they're looking for very obvious things of the person is trying to tackle the officer or they're trying to punch them and strike them or going for a weapon, something of that nature where it's, it's very obvious to the officer because they've been trained in both of those areas, it's really this gray line of they're not fully trying to assault me, uh, but they're just not listening to my commands. And they're just walking away from me. And I know I need to put this person in handcuffs, but they're just walking away. So I, I try grabbing on their arm and they pull away from me. They just keep walking, but they're not fully committed to assaulting me. So I don't feel comfortable going through my hard hand strikes and defensive tactics. And I really don't know what to do from here. I know I need to do something, but I don't have it. And it's just, we haven't trained them in understanding this real gray area right there of they don't feel comfortable jumping to the far spectrum and using somewhat violent tactics to get the person under control and make the arrest. And the person won't voluntarily come back using verbal de-escalation. They can't talk them into the handcuffs. The person's just refusing. That gray area there is where we're going to implement those new soft hand approach tactics of grabbing a hold of the person so they can't run away, so they can't pull away from you anymore, and then executing a takedown to take them to the ground, and then holding there in a positional control so the person can't hurt the officer, can't hurt themselves, they can't escape, hurt anyone else. And the officer will keep speaking to them, trying to bring them back to that green side of the spectrum, obtaining that voluntary compliance without having to go straight to the violent tactics of striking them. And that's usually where uh, use of force investigations and the troubled ones, the ones that we see on camera of it looks like the, the officer just started hitting the person or, you know, it looked like a violent manner of trying to affect an arrest of a person who wasn't trying to assault the officer. They're just simply did not want to go to jail by means of pulling away, walking away, whatever it may be. And it looks like the officers are, are being violent. It's really that's all the officers have to gain control of them. And that's going to be our new approach of these tactics is we're giving them some more tools to deal with that gray area. That way they can make more decisive actions and use a lower level of force a little quicker so it doesn't escalate to having to do uh, violent tactics uh, with that. Well, with that said, certainly the cause of law enforcement has not been helped a great deal by especially television because they're not going to show that three to five minute verbal encounter where the officer and the subject who is about to be placed under arrest are going back and forth and, and where the officer is using de-escalation techniques. And, and where, as you said, basically trying to talk this person down to get them to talk themselves 
into handcuffs or whatever the case may be, that piece will never be shown. And I understand that. Having been a former TV guy, there's just not enough time that you can do that. So they're going to go straight to the takedown. And I think that's the thing that has really jaded it in the eyes of the public as far as law enforcement are concerned is that, you know, officers do show great restraint. Officers do show a lot of patience, but that's the piece that's just not going to be shown. So clearly through our discussion, you made it pretty obvious that policing of yesterday and policing of today are quite different. And I know the Academy and, and of course you have done a lot of research and developed a different way of conducting business on the street. So, and maybe you're going to have to do a little crystal balling here, but I know there's some new courses out there. What does the future of subject control look like in North Carolina? So the new subject control that we're going to be piloting and, and uh, releasing next year, it's going to include new tactics. Uh, like I talked about the, uh, the soft hands approach of uh, grabbing a hold of the person, holding them down on the ground and uh, not being in a rush. We're trying to change the behavior and the mindset of officers to get away from the tactics that they have. They're going to use what they need to use, but we're basically going to give them some new tools with the techniques they're going to receive. But we're also trying to change their behavior in that officers have always been trained to, if a person is resistive and combative, we need to hurry up and get them in handcuffs as soon as possible, as quickly as possible by any means necessary. So that way we can stop the threat and stop the risk to ourselves, to that person, to anyone else, hurry up and get them in handcuffs. And what we find out is that's not really the best approach to it. If you, uh, even if we have videos of there being four, five, six, seven officers on one person, and they are struggling to get control of that person. They are all dogpile on them. They cannot get a hold of them. They can't control them because the person is full of energy and they're full of a will to resist. But the officers are in a hurry and they're constantly pulling and pulling and tugging and they're just trying and they're striking and, and uh, trying to do their best to get that person into handcuffs as quickly as possible. What we found with the, the new tactics and, and training that we're going to employ is we don't have to be in a hurry to put those handcuffs on. The idea is we just want to hold them down and control them in a more humane manner and try to attempt to allow the person to escape. They're going to try to resist. They're going to try to hurt the officer, but the officer will hold them in a, in a way that they can't hurt the officer, they can't hurt themselves, anyone else, and they're basically exhausting themselves. And once they get to that point of they're just tired and they're, they're, they're just breathing heavy, they're just, they are wore out. They don't have as, as much strength anymore. They're out of breath. At that time, that's the best time to put the person in handcuffs because it's easier to control them. It's either to roll them over, place their hands behind their back, and uh, it'll be a more, it almost, it takes a lot longer to get the arrest. They're going to employ several, up to maybe several minutes of holding this person down there. But right now with the tactics that, uh, that we've used for the last 20 years is uh, they're attempting to speak to the person but it's uh, while they're using force and trying to get them under control, but it's usually just very small commands of get on the ground, put your hands behind your back, stop resisting. Uh, and they just shout this over and over. What we found is if they can hold the person down where the person can't escape, can't hurt them, can't hurt themselves, the officer can actually buy themselves more time and kind of reset and think about what just happened. What do I have? What charges do I have? What can I do from here? While the entire time the person is exhausting themselves and going to make it easier to control and put them in handcuffs, 
it allows the officer's heart rate to come back down while they're in that control position, allows them to talk more directly to the person of actually speaking to them. Hey, it's okay. Calm down. It's over. Just relax. Just relax. And they can actually gain better voluntary control and compliance of the person through these techniques. Now, these, these techniques, they come from a background of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. For the last several years, law enforcement agencies uh, around the country and around the world have been employing these techniques uh, and using this training. And Brazilian jiu-jitsu is just, it's another form of martial art. It's actually kind of a newer form in which it hasn't been around, but just the less than 100 years. And in the big scheme of things, that's actually pretty new compared to kickboxing and Muay Thai and, and wrestling. And some of those have been around hundreds, thousands of years. Um, so it's kind of a new concept. And what that comes from is, of course, it was invented in Brazil. And uh, the Gracie family are the pioneers and inventor of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, the way it came about was the Gracie family, a gentleman migrated from Japan. He was a, a judo master, a judo expert in uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu. And uh, the Gracie family took him in and uh, gave him room and board and, and, uh, and all that. And in return, he said, I will teach your sons this martial art. I have no money for you, but I can teach them this. So he did. And uh, in judo, in the versions of Japanese jiu-jitsu, they take a lot of strength and power and uh, athleticism in order to uh, use these techniques. One of the sons, name was Elio Gracie, and he was very frail, smaller than the others. Uh, they said he couldn't go up a flight of stairs without running out of breath, and he was very brittle. And uh, so they, they really wouldn't let him train. He couldn't do a lot. Very unathletic kid. He'd stand on the side and he would watch his brothers all train and uh, all becoming masters of judo and uh, this art with this um, this grandmaster. And uh, he began to come up with his own ways of changing the techniques that he was seeing from the sidelines and learning them. So that way, him being less athletic and less strong and less powerful, he wasn't trying to uh, defeat his brothers or anybody else that he had faced. He was just simply coming up with a way that he could not be beaten. And that was really became his claim to fame years later, uh, even as an old man. He would tell world champions and uh, just other people around the world who would come in and test him is uh, he would just tell them, I bet you can't beat me. And his whole thing was, I'm not trying to submit you. I'm not trying to defeat you. I just bet you can't hurt me and you can't get control of me. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is known as the gentle art. So for policing, that's actually falls right in line with what we need to be doing as subject control is telling the person physically, you can't hurt me. You can't hurt yourself. You can't escape. You can't get away. And you can't hurt me. And controlling them, what would be a more gentle, humane approach, thus allowing us to actually submit them would be us placing them in handcuffs. Uh, and that's the way that our officers win any kind of fight that they're in is by winning it is by placing them in handcuffs. We want to really limit the injuries that we have to the officers, to the citizens, and improve the overall community relationships that these agencies and departments strive so hard to build. So our tactics are going to be a lot of incorporation of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, of survival, the officers are attacked, be able to protect themselves, and then also them being able to control these subjects and these citizens that are resistive and, and combative that they encounter. Well, in some past episodes, we've had just great discussions with our colleague, Paul Phelan, who's up on the West Campus in Edneyville. And in, in my mind, if 
I ever decide to go sideways, that's the first guy that I want to call because he has just got such a calming effect about him. And he talked a lot about verbal de-escalation. And it sounds to me what you've described is kind of a physical de-escalation. Am I on the right track there? It's like, you know, when it's used right, that it can kind of take the fight out of someone, if you will, to kind of use an old phrase. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. But the way that tactics were done many, many years ago is uh, to use force. It was more of a ask, tell, make. Sir, would you please turn around? Sir, turn around. And then they physically turn the person around. And then it came to a point uh, years ago that it was the implementation of verbal de-escalation. And uh, that was a huge push there of instead of ask, tell, make, try to slow the scene down and talk to the person. Try to get a rapport with them. Use your communication to uh, gain voluntary compliance before you have to use force. The problem that that I've run across with doing different training, looking at uh, use of force incidents and body cameras and and, uh, things that I'll review is with our tactics and our verbal de-escalation or officer presence is we really draw a line in the sand and we'll attempt to talk to them up to a point. And if that point uh, we reach there, it's obvious it's just not going to work. We have to jump straight to those tactics, which is our our hard hand tactics of striking, going to batons and all that. And also what I've seen with a lot of the issues in that gray area I spoke about earlier was some of the officers will will try to use verbal de-escalation. They'll try to speak to them, gain rapport, and it's actually having a negative effect in which it gives the indication to the person that the officer's hesitant to use force. The officer doesn't want to put their hands on them in order to affect the arrest. And in some cases, actually empowers and emboldens the subject that they're dealing with, where now that person will begin to step into the red area of testing the officer to see if they'll use force, or they come up and they assault the officer because they were trying to use that verbal de-escalation, and they jump to their more violent tactics of striking, baton, OC, taser. So in that gray area right there, we're beginning to use what we call physical de-escalation. Now, when I, last year, I was lucky enough to go out to uh, Los Angeles to Gracie University, and uh, I trained out there with the Gracie brothers, Hedon and Henry Gracie, and they brought in LAPD, and they did a seminar there with their use of force expert, and he talked about some of the issues that they had uh, the Los Angeles Police Department and uh, how they were, they moved to change that with the implementation of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and what they called tactical de-escalation. And he explained basically that same problem that we were having of our guys are there, they're trying to talk to them, they're trying to talk to them, and the person just won't come over to the green side and just, okay, you're, I understand, I've got a warrant, I have to go to jail. The person just would keep walking away or pulling away, and the officer's still trying to get control of them through communication. And then it came to a point they had to jump on the person and uh, begin striking them. They had to OC them, tase them, because the person would just keep resisting. And that's the ones that kept getting caught on camera. And that's the ones they would show where it looks like the guy's not doing anything at all. He's just walking away. He just keeps backing up and won't listen to the officer and won't let him put his hands on. And then they have to jump to that. So we said to try to clean that up, they use what they call tactical de-escalation, which is basically the same as what we're talking about. Is just now we're, we have a little buffer there of the person's backing up, the person's just resistive. We'll use physical de-escalation of grabbing a hold of them taking them down, holding them in that positional control, and then still trying to verbal de-escalate the person, still trying to bring them back down. And we're basically trying to warn them of we're using soft hands, 
we're controlling the person, maybe joint lock, any kind of minor discomfort pain compliance to get control of the person, to bring them back. One of my scat instructors that uh, we're, I was training with, he used a, a great analogy of what we're trying to do with physical de-escalation is we're basically the ghost of Christmas future, as in we are telling them of the things that will come if they don't change their ways. And we're doing it in a manner which is not going to hurt them and uh, control them. And we just, we're trying to let you know, I need you to stop resisting and don't go any further or I'm going to have to use this force that I don't want to do. Please come back to this side. So it's a little buffer in between verbal de-escalation and our full-on subject control tactics. Well, and just to kind of put it all under one roof, it sounds like what you're trying to teach is patience. Yes, exactly. Well, I mentioned earlier the Academy makes every effort to stay on the cutting edge of developing training for hot button issues like subject control. So tell us about some of the newest course offerings on uh, survival and control tactics. I've been teaching now for uh, several months now is our uh, survival control tactics course. And it's a three-day course. And uh, its main component is are Gracie survival tactics. And I've implemented some of the SCAT training that officers already had. So I'll do an overview and refresher of some of those techniques and then the new stuff of the Gracie survival tactics and a few other uh, sources and references that I've drawn material from. We'll tie all that together so it all kind of links together for the training that they've already had. And then we kind of splice that in so they can see how they can move from one to another. And that's the big thing that uh, I teach them is not only these tactics, but the patience that you talked about and using that physical de-escalation. I just wrapped up yesterday teaching the course uh, up in the mountains. They, it takes them a little while to kind of understand what I'm trying to do. But once it happens, a light bulb goes off in them. It's three days of learning these techniques, how to physically grab a hold of people and do these tactics. But really, the whole idea is the tactics are only 20% of it. Really, 80% of it is changing the officer's mindset of not worrying about being in a hurry all the time. Just worry about being safe, controlling the person. Let the person exhaust themselves on their own while you're physically holding them down and reserving your energy and also buying yourself some more time. And uh, the Gracies talk about using their Gracie survival tactics of if you get a person into a control where you can hold them down where they can't hurt you or themselves, you hold them there for 100 seconds. That way, they're just completely exhausted. You're waiting for more backup to arrive, and you're also resetting your mind. Because a lot of times, these things happen in just milliseconds of just all of a sudden somebody is attacking, somebody is running, something's happening. And officers don't have enough time to formulate what is going on and make good decisions under stress. Using these tactics that we use in the survival control tactics and what's coming out of the new BLET is it gives them some more time to really come up with what happened, what's going on right now, and what's the best course of action that I can take next. Well, in addition to what the Academy offers, and of course, you, know, you guys are just the best of the best, no matter what the subject matter is. The Academy seems to consistently find the absolute best instructors and course developers, but I know you are probably pretty excited that you have the ability to bring in some outside instructors as we kind of 
peel back another layer of this onion and, and turn the page into a new chapter of subject control. Let's talk about those folks for a minute. We're going to be hosting several courses coming up. During the whole research, development, and training and testing of the new stuff that we come out, the sources and references that I really uh, drew upon was uh, the Gracie family, one of those being Hoist Gracie. If you're not familiar with Hoist Gracie, uh, the Gracies invented UFC back in the, in the early 90s. Hoist Gracie was its first competitor, first uh, champion, and he won multiple tournaments being crowned the champion of the USC. And the whole reason behind the creation of the Ultimate Fighting Championship in the 90s was when the Gracies immigrated from Brazil to Southern California, they began to bring in students from all over who were coming to the garage, learning, and they're like, you need to show people that this is the best way to control people, how to win a fight. And it's very hard to fight against them. So they would go to different gyms and they would go and challenge black belts and try to show them, hey, our martial arts better. We'll show you why you should come and, and learn our tactic. Finally, somebody convinced them you should take it to the main stage and uh, you should show the world. So that's where they invented the Ultimate Fighting Championship is it was all different styles competing. And the Gracies want to show the world that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was the best one. Boyce Gracie, being one of the sons, he was the competitor to represent them. He was undefeated multiple-time champion. From then, of course, Brazilian jiu-jitsu began to take off. The U.S. Army, military, law enforcement saw how effective this was and asked them to come and begin to make the Army Combatives Program and uh, train all their special ops. And now the basic training in the Army is, is a lot of it is Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff with the Army Combatives Program. With us drawing on Hoist Gracie's defensive tactics which is a lot of the methodology that we're trying to employ with physical de-escalation and the actual physical tactics and techniques that our officers are going to learn with this new billet. We thought it would be best if instead of just us teaching it, what if we had the person, the author and inventor himself come to the Justice Academy, our officers could come, our scat instructors could come, and they could learn from the person themselves. And uh, we felt that was huge and valuable thing in order for them to learn and to really help push where we're trying to go here is to have his support and backing and him actually physically teach some of our our officers and our scat instructors as uh, we feel that would be extremely beneficial and uh, exciting for one to have him come to the justice academy and, and to teach overall aaron just great stuff again as an old goat it's exciting to me because you mentioned that lesson plan of 1977 that ironically is the year that I came into law enforcement. So I remember <laughs> reading those things and, you know, even then thinking something doesn't feel right about cracking a guy in the head with a flashlight. So it's exciting to me as a law enforcement guy, but more so as a citizen to know that this change had to come about. And I'm so glad that the North Carolina Justice Academy, as it usually does, has taken the lead role. I'm glad that there's a guy like you as a school director who has the foresight to see that this change needs to be made and then to go out and find an outside vendor like the Gracies to come to the Justice Academy and offer what they have to your instructors. It's a new day. And man, I'm telling you, it's a very exciting day. And just can't say enough about you and the academy doing the right thing, for lack of a better term. 
Aaron Stevens is an instructor and course developer based on the East Campus in Salemburg, where among his specialties are courses on subject control, of which, as I mentioned, he is also the school director. Subject control and arrest techniques are turning a corner in the state of North Carolina, and the North Carolina Justice Academy is going to be there at the start and the finish line. That does it for this episode of NCJA 1014. Until we speak again, please stay safe. NCJA 1014.